everybody, we're going to go ahead and get started since our time is limited. Um, I'm going to I'm going to get us going. Um, one little housekeeping item. There was an email that went out not that long ago, so probably not everybody saw it. There's no nursery this evening, so I know some of you were expecting there to be nursery, um, but it, there weren't volunteers. Um, I do know that there are some people back there watching the live stream, but um, just so you know, um, this is family gathering number two of three. So um, last week, Craig started us. I'm going to continue uh, tell you in a moment what we're talking about this week. We will not be having a family gathering next Sunday afternoon. So the, the final third and final family gathering will be um, Sunday, November 5th. So just make sure you, you uh, take note of that, mental, uh, mental note of that. And I just want to say hi to whoever is watching us on the live stream. I know some folks couldn't make it back here in person, so glad you're able to uh, watch online. Um, let me begin in prayer, and then we'll jump in. Our good and gracious God, we come tonight or this afternoon asking that you would give us insight, understanding, and wisdom as we look at your word. We pray that you would give us humility and patience as we work through um, difficult-to-understand passages, and we pray that you would unite us together more and more as your family, as brothers and sisters, um, together worshiping and serving you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what are these meetings about? I'm not going to go into gory detail. Craig covered this last week, but we're talking about women's participation in the church, and the elders have been studying this issue for many years, discussing this issue with our, uh, amongst ourselves for many years, um, praying about this issue for many years. And we believe that, that we as a church have been overly restrictive um, or overly restricting women in what they, they can and ought to be doing in the worship services. So in other words, we believe we've been going beyond Scripture in, in the restrictions we've, we've um, practiced. And so we believe that we need to make, that there's some changes needed for our practices um, in order to better align ourselves with um, Scripture's teaching and better align ourselves with Scripture's vision of men and women co-laboring together in the church. So as Craig said last week, we're not proposing that women serve as elders or that women preach at GBC. Um, We just say that up front to alleviate any concerns about that. But we are proposing that women be fully equipped to use their gifts and serve alongside men as co-laborers in Christ here at Grace Bible Church. And scripture paints a, a beautiful picture of men and women serving side by side for the the good of the church, for the advance of the gospel, and all to the glory of God. And so our desire is to to better align ourselves as a church with with that reality. Now, um, we're talking about change, but uh, some things will not change. Some things will stay the same. And so the elders will continue to oversee the worship service. The elders will continue to call us to worship, preach the word, administer the ordinances, um, close the service. So some things will not change. Um, Some things will need to change. And and we'll talk about that more um, at the next session. You know, practically, what will this look like? Um, Last week, Craig, and it's intentionally black, so that you look here. I was curious how it would work. I figured at first everybody would think something went wrong. Last week, 
Um, Craig explained how we got here, um, why we got here. Um, he also provided a, a kind of um, high-level biblical foundation for this discussion. And Craig encouraged all of us, um, elders as well as the congregation, to approach this with humility and Christ-likeness. And there's something he said. I want to I repeat what he said. He said, the way we go about this is just as important as where we end up. I don't know if that's a verbatim quote, but that's my recollection of what he said. Um, where we end up, you know, convictionally, where we land in our convictions, our understandings of Scripture is very important. Um, we want to be biblical in all we do, but how we conduct ourselves throughout this process, and, I, and I'm speaking of us as elders, I'm speaking of you as the, the congregation, how we conduct ourselves is equally important. And so James has a timely word for us. I've been thinking about this this week uh, from James 1. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we talk about how we approach this, how we conduct ourselves, it's that kind of thing, what James is talking about. So let's keep that in mind as we, as we continue to, to go through this process. Um, this afternoon, we're going to be looking at three key passages of Scripture. So 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Now, um, with that final passage, I'm just going to introduce it, make a few comments. I'll, I'll unpack it at the next session. I'm hoping just to get through those first two. <laughs> we'll see. Um, if there's time toward the end, we'll talk about, I'll talk about some common concerns we've been hearing and, and how to process those. But, um, but we really want to look at the, the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, 1 Corinthians 14 passage. Now, why these three passages? How do, you know, the Bible's a big book. Why these three? Well, much of the debate around what women um, should or shouldn't do in church revolves around these three passages. So they're, they're key passages in this discussion. Um, these three passages are notoriously difficult to exegete, um, which causes confusion, which results in, in different interpretations. Um, each of these passages was written by the Apostle Paul, but something that tends to happen is um, interpreters tend to pit one thing Paul says against another thing Paul says. And um, often that means rejecting one text in favor of the other. And people on both sides of the complementarian, egalitarian divide tend to do this. It's not, it's not just a liberal conservative thing, not that egalitarians are necessarily liberal, but you, you get what I'm saying. People on both sides, depending on where they come, they come from, tend to do this. Um, we want to present an interpretation of these passages that provides clarity um, about women's participation in the services, um, an interpretation that provides correction to common misunderstandings and, and misinterpretations of these passages. We also want to provide an a, um, interpretation that presents a window into the basic unity of these passages and their teaching. So showing how they're, they're not contradictory, they're complementary, they work together. So before we look at the, the passages, we need to talk about Bible Interpretation 101, just some basic, I'm going to just say some basic things about how we read and interpret the Bible. It's, 
important that we read the Bible well, interpret the Bible well. And our church's statement of faith has an excellent paragraph about interpreting the Bible. And it says, Each of us is called to correctly handle the Word of God. Thus we are to discern its true, intended, and plain meaning. We establish meaning by, number one, context. Number two, by recognizing the basic unity of all Scripture. And then number three, and therefore by following the basic rule of all biblical interpretation, scripture must, be used, scripture must be used to interpret Scripture. So three important principles. Context, unity of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. Let me just briefly say something about each of those. Um, context. Um, we've been uh, going through the Discipleship Hour class, Teach Us Your Word. We've talked about context. Um, we have to pay attention to the context of any given verse or passage. We can't just lift a Bible verse from where it is and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Um, Bible verses mean what they mean in the context of sentences, of paragraphs, of, of the entire book that it's in, of the entire canon of Scripture. Likewise, proper interpretation of Scripture requires that we pay attention to the historical and cultural context in which it was written and, and read. Um, ignoring context leads to bad interpretation. So context is important. Um, second principle, the unity of Scripture. Now, the Bible's a big book. You know, I have a printed Bible here that is, is pretty hefty. It's a big book written over many centuries, contains many different pieces of literature. But the, the Bible's message is essentially one. It's a, a unified, coherent, consistent message. It does not contradict itself. And therefore, we shouldn't interpret a passage of Scripture in a way that contradicts the clear, pass, um, the clear teaching of another passage of Scripture. So, unity of Scripture, third principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, not every part of Scripture is equally clear. You know, some, some things are very clear, straightforward, some things are not as clear, and um, some parts are more difficult to understand than others. And so, responsible interpretation involves allowing the parts of Scripture that are more clear to inform our understanding of the parts of Scripture that are less clear. So we need to compare Scripture to Scripture. So those are three basic principles, and I'm going to be hopefully exemplifying those uh, this afternoon. But there are two errors we need to avoid um, when we come to um, these passages. And the first error uh, to avoid is dismissing them. So um, because you know, pass it, these passages don't necessarily align with our church tradition or cultural assumptions or social conventions, and I'm just speaking broadly here, Scripture sometimes confronts us with things that we're uncomfortable with, um, just because um, that's a factor doesn't mean we can just dismiss um, a, a passage of Scripture. So we always should remember that we do not stand over Scripture. Scripture stands over us. Our, our task as the people of Christ is to humbly submit to Scripture's teaching. And if I'm uncomfortable with something Scripture teaches, I can't just set it aside. Um, so, um, the, you know, one mistake is to dismiss these passages. Uh, a second error to avoid to avoid is misrepresenting these passages. And so making the passages say more than they actually say. Um, and the result of that uh, is 
overly restricting women from serving the body of Christ. And so we need to guard against both of those errors. Um, Let me say something about our focus tonight. So somebody asked me right beforehand, are you really going to cover all those those three passages? And I'm covering like two and a half of the passages. But our focus tonight is limited. Um, Entire books have been written about these passages. Um, We don't have time to explore all the details. And so there's a, a particular question we're bringing to each of these passages. And that question is, what does the passage teach about women's participation in the worship service? So, so the focus is, is limited because, you know, you hear the expression, don't lose the forest for the trees. There's a lot of trees in these passages. Uh, we'll talk about some of those trees, but we want to keep the forest, the big picture in mind. And so my goal tonight as I walk through some of these passages with you is to, to help us see the big picture and then um, to help us uh, discern a few key takeaways from these passages. So the first passage we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 11, 12 through 16. Now, this is a tricky passage. I know many of you have read this um, passage. There are a number of Greco-Roman customs and social conventions that inform uh, the content of this passage and the instructions that Paul gives. So there's cultural issues. Um, It all seems so foreign and strange to us. I mean, we are chronologically far removed from first century Corinth. We are also culturally distant from the Greco-Roman world. And so that cultural background, which is often mysterious to us as Bible readers, tends to overshadow something that Paul says very clearly about men and women in the worship service. And so before we even look at the details of the passage, I want to give you the key takeaway up front so you're clear what what I think we see, what the elders think we see in this passage. So what do we see about women's participation in the worship service from 1 Corinthians 11? And then after I give you the takeaway, we'll look at some of the key verses. Key takeaway, both men and women ought to play vocal roles in the worship service. Uh, That is what the elders are saying is the key takeaway for this discussion about 1 Corinthians 11. Both men and women ought to play vocal roles in the worship service. It's, It's not either or, it's both. It's not one to the exclusion of the other, it's both. And the key verses... Uh, it's a big passage, but two key verses, um, 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5, and I'm going to be using the NASB uh, for tonight because it's a little clearer than the ESV in, in these passages. Um, here's what Paul says, verses 4 and 5, toward the beginning of this, this passage. He says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for it is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now, let me say a few things about context here. Um, Chapters 11 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, it's like like one um, essay, if you want to think of it like that. One, 
you know, First Corinthians is like multiple um, essays put together, you know, multiple pieces of writing that Paul has done. Um, just meaning uh, chapters 11 to 14 all hang together. They, they focus on the church's corporate worship gatherings. And how do we know the context is the church's worship services? Well, Paul talks about things like activities like prophesying, like speaking in tongues, like celebrating the Lord's Supper, um, teaching. These are things, public ministries that were done in the context of the gathered church, done for the edification of the gathered church. They weren't things that were done in in isolation for the, the benefit of one's private devotional life. And so Paul is talking about the worship services in Corinth, and he provides some corrective instruction to the Corinthian church. There were um, various, the, the people of Corinth, the Christians of Corinth, were engaging in various behaviors when they came together that were causing um, distraction and disorder and um, uh, maybe a small degree of chaos in their worship services. And so Paul writes to bring some correction to that. And so in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, he gives instruction to those who pray and prophesy in the worship service. So let's, let's look at this a little more closely. Who I'm just going to ask some questions that we'll try to answer. Who prays or prophesies in the worship service? Now, we, we saw those verses. I'm going to show them again. We tend to overlook this. You know, we, we get caught up in the question about head coverings and hair length and, and all the other things Paul says. But who prays or prophesies in the worship service? Let's look at those verses again. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Paul also says, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. And then he goes on. So Paul says two things here about who prays and prophesies in the service. Number one, there were men praying and prophesying in the service. Number two, there were women praying and prophesying in the service. Now notice, Paul doesn't say only men should pray or prophesy in the gatherings. In fact, Paul is not even giving instructions about who should pray or prophesy in the service. He's talking about how people go about it. That's what the discussion about head coverings is about. Um, the, The question of who is just assumed and expected. There's no question in Paul's mind who prays and prophesies in the service. It's both men and women. That's why he addresses both. When the men pray, do this. When the, when the women pray, do this. Paul assumed and expected that women would play a vocal role in the service. Why did he expect it? Because it was the normal and universal practice in the early church, the churches that Paul ministered to. So who is, is quite clear. What are prayer and prophecy? So, um, you know, I'm going to do this very briefly, but both are speaking activities. So we're talking about the the gathered worship service, not one's private devotional life. The gathered worship, both of these are speaking activities. One person prays while the rest of the congregation sits quietly and listens. One person prophesies while the rest of the congregation sits quietly and listens. Um, Public prayer obviously involves vocalizing um, praise and confession and petitions to God on behalf of the gathered family of God. Prophecy, what is prophecy? Prophecy is a spiritual gift. Now, set aside for for the moment the question of whether prophecy is a gift that's still active in the church today. That, That 
the answer to that question is not important for what we're looking at tonight. Um, prophecy was a spiritual gift, a spiritual gift given to both men and women. So Paul talks about this throughout chapters 11 to 14, um, very, quite a bit in chapter 14. A gift given to both men and women. Both men and women exercised the gift of prophecy in the gathered worship, in the worship service. Um, prophecy is one of several speaking gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians, alongside things like speaking in tongues, um, uh, teaching, interpretation of tongues. And Paul says in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians that prophecy is the superior gift. The superior gift. He tells them, I wish you all, you know, earnestly desire that you would prophesy. Um, why? Because he says that prophecy edifies the church. Prophecy edifies the church. He says in chapter 14 that prophecy strengthens, exhorts, comforts, convicts, and instructs the hearers. And in fact, that, that Greek word he uses for instructs in um, chapter 14, verse 19, the, the Greek verb is the, the verb we get our English verb to catechize. Um, we, get, we get our word catechize. There's an instructional aspect to the content of prophecy. So it's, it differs from speaking in tongues, which Paul indicates is speaking in an unknown language that the other people don't understand. That's why he says in chapter 14, verse 31, those who listen to the prophet's speech learn something. So again, in verses 4 and 5, Paul expects that both men and women will fill these, these public vocal roles in the service. Um, God gifts and equips both men and women to pray and prophesy in the church. So um, who prays and prophesies in the service? Both men and women. What are prayer and prophecy? They're both speaking activities. Um, I, by speaking, I just simply mean they're vocal. And then what is Paul's purpose in this passage? So I know we haven't looked at all the details, but what is Paul getting at here in this Passage. I assume that most of you have read it and are, are relatively familiar with it. Um, does Paul intend to keep women from participating in the service? Or is he aiming at something else? What's his goal? And, and I I'll, I'll say, I'll summarize. His purpose is not to prevent or limit women from participating in the service. Um, we tend to read it that way. We tend to read it that way because of various reasons, because of um, tradition, maybe the churches we grew up in or the churches we've been a part of, um, you know, the, the saying, we've just always done it this way. Um, maybe because of our cultural background, maybe because uh, um, we impose a theological system on the text rather than letting the text speak to us. Um, there is little in this passage to suggest that Paul intends to keep women from participating in vocal roles in the service. In fact, his purpose is not to silence women at all in this passage. Here's Paul's main point, and I'm summarizing. Um, men and women should wear gender-appropriate apparel while praying or prophesying in the worship service. Um, attire that doesn't blur the distinction between genders. That's the focus of this passage. All that discussion about head coverings is rooted in, in um, cultural customs of the time, in particular Roman Corinth. Um, and his instructions basically boil down to two points. Um, when the men pray or prophesy, 
they shouldn't cover their heads. And when the women pray or prophesy, they should cover their heads. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details about um, why that would be. And I do want to add that the elder's understanding is that the head covering requirement was um, a culturally specific application of the bigger principle of not blurring the lines between genders. So we don't believe that um, Christian women in our context are required to wear a head covering when praying because head coverings don't have the same kind of significance or symbolism in our cultural context as they did then. But um, briefly, what's the big deal about head coverings? Is Paul being the fashion police? You know, we might read it and think, wow, Paul's just like, you know, um, I don't like your shirt. Put something else, you know, different color. Um, No, he's not being the fashion police Um, then, first century Corinth, and now. Um, gender is often marked by things like hairstyles and and clothing. And he wants the worshipers there in Corinth to do two things. Number one, he wants them to honor the God-givenness of gender differences by their attire. Um, That's the whole don't blur the distinctions, which would be the case if a man um, covered his head in that that setting or a a woman did not. Um, He also, number two, and this is probably the bigger issue, he doesn't want the, the church to cause a scandal in the surrounding community by disregarding these cultural customs. So chapters 8 through um, 10, Paul really emphasizes this. Don't cause any hindrances to the gospel. And, um, you know, I've become all things to all people so that um, they might be saved. And, and you know, if, if the Christians in Corinth were like, we're Christians, we're free in Christ, we don't need to abide by these social conventions— um, it would have damaged the gospel's reputation in the community. They would have been seen as some kind of weirdo cult. Um, and, and the Christians there were in a precarious situation, vulnerable. Um, they were not in power. Let me try to give you an example of just some of the effect. We live in a different context, but let me give you an example. Um, you know, imagine that on Sundays, all of us, or even just some of us, um, gathered together for worship wearing Speedos or bikinis. Number one, yeah, ew. Number one, it would be incredibly awkward for us. Number two, it would give our non-Christian neighbors or any visitors who came all kinds of wrong ideas about the gospel. These people are weirdos. Keep your distance from them. That, that it would harm our gospel witness, and that's sort of the, the, the effect this whole head covering thing would have. There are other, ways, other issues involved in the head covering, but, but that's a big one. Imagine more seriously, think of a Middle Eastern context. You could imagine Paul telling the church to go along with the traditional male and female attire, in particular head coverings for women, for the sake of the gospel. Don't disregard the social conventions if you don't have to. If it's just a morally neutral thing um, and it's not a a matter of, you know, gospel fidelity, fidelity to God and his word, then just don't make a a scene. So that's, that's Paul's purpose. Here, not to silence women, but to talk about how the church should um, do things properly and in order when they gather. So just a couple things Paul doesn't say here in this passage, just for the sake of clarity, because we bring a lot of baggage to um, these passages. Um, Paul doesn't say that there is something wrong, shameful, or inappropriate about women praying or prophesying in the worship service. Um, it's doing so, a woman praying in the service is an appropriate expression, praying or prophesying. Again, set aside the question about 
what exactly prophecy is. Is it active? Um, it's an appropriate expression of the priesthood and prophethood of all believers. Um, he doesn't say that it's problematic or undesirable for a woman to woman's voice to be heard in the worship service. It's quite the opposite, actually. Um, the, women, the woman's prayers and prophetic speech edified and built up the church. Paul is saying they're, they're the, engaging in these activities strengthened the church. Um, he doesn't say vocal participation by women is permissible but not ideal. So we might be tempted to, to adopt this stance. Well, okay, I see that there were women praying in the service, but um, let's just stay, keep our distance from that because we might, we might wander into some wrong uh, things if we, if we get too close. Um, so, but Paul doesn't say it's permissible but not ideal, so just don't do it. Um, he doesn't say that, that the women can only pray after the men or there's so- something like that. Um, he doesn't say prevent the women from praying or prophesying because uh, women talk too much. Um, you know, some women, some women do talk a lot, um, but some men talk a lot. I mean, I, I've sat through a number of Bible studies where guys who have no clue what they're talking about pontificate endlessly, and it's like, please, Lord, take me home right now. I am dying. That, that's the like pious way of just thinking, man, I wish this guy would shut up. Um, some people do talk too much. That's, not, that's a behavior problem to address with an individual. That is not a reason to restrict one gender from doing what the Bible says they can do. Okay? So a, a gender stereotype is not a reason to prevent a man or a woman from, from doing things that the Bible says are good and right and they ought to be doing. So, um, you know, uh, just briefly, the authority question often comes up, and we're not going to be able to dive into this a whole lot today. We'll, we'll do it at the next session. But is praying in the worship service an exercise of authority? And if so, shouldn't we keep women from doing it? Well, We'll have to talk about that more when we get to 1 Timothy. I will say a little bit more about it later. But what kind of authority is Paul talking about in 1 Timothy 2? That, that's, we can't just take the word and say, no authority. What kind of authority? What limitations does he give? And so um, those are good questions that we'll get to. But we need to see that Paul does not say here, stop the women from praying. Silence them because it's you know there's something wrong with hearing their voice in the service. So again, um, let me let me summarize here. Um, what does the passage say about women's participation in the worship service? Well, historically here at GBC, we've said their um, participation should be very minimal, and and really we shouldn't be hearing their voices in the service apart from congregational singing. Um, This passage invites us to rethink that perspective. This passage invites us to to hold up our our practice and our our theology to the light of Scripture and see what's really going on. And clearly, Paul expected both men's and women's voices to be valued and heard in the service. So that's why I said the key takeaway was this. Um, Both men and women ought to play vocal roles in the worship service. So there, there is an oughtness to it. 
It's not the whole, well, it's permissible but not ideal. There's an oughtness to it. God designed the church such that men's and women's voices are being heard in the worship service. So um, week three, you know, session three, I should, I should be pointing this way. This is for you guys, this is like ahead, this is back. Um, we'll look at some of what that could look like practically because I know there's all kinds of questions about what that might look like. But we need to move on to 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 35. Um, earlier, I, I talked about one of the errors we need to avoid, which is, um, uh, or one of the problems we need to avoid, which is pitting one passage against another, as if there's not a unity to the scriptural teaching on these issues. And this is a passage that some use to invalidate what we just saw in chapter 11. So chapter 11's big takeaway about both men and women's voices ought to be heard in the service. Um, some will use this chapter, so just a few chapters later in the same book, to say, well, that let's cancel that out. And, you know, I said at the beginning, we need to use the Bible interpretation strategies that I mentioned. Um, context, unity of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of that as we look at this, um, this section. Um, before looking at the details, so I, I'm trying to do this dance between the forest and the trees. I'm trying to keep the forest in front of you because it's easy to lose, lose our place. Big picture, what's the big uh, key takeaway from, from this passage? Um, both men and women should avoid causing disruptions during the worship service. I hope that sounds really boring, mundane, and unremarkable to you. This is one of those passages that many people make say more than it actually does. And um, Paul's main point here is do everything decently and in order. Stop disrupting each other. Both men and women should avoid causing disruptions during the worship service. Now, let's look at some of the details. Um, Key verses. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 33b through 35. So this is towards the end of that bigger um, section. And, And Paul says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything... Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, you might, you know, I just read these verses, you might be thinking, how in the world did he get that key takeaway? Don't cause disruptions in church. Um, Well, let's do a a bit of a close reading of the text. And here's what we're going to see. Paul tells three groups, so not just in these verses, but in the whole paragraph. Paul tells three groups of people to be quiet. Um... The command to keep silent is not an absolute prohibition of speaking. Um, The specific type of speech that Paul forbids is is very limited. He's not just talking about all speech in general. So um, we'll, we'll walk through these. A few words about context. Context is so important with this passage. It's important with every passage, but definitely this one. Um, Context is key, and here's a high-level kind of structural outline of chapters 11 through 14. And it's one 
cohesive unit dealing with problems in the church's worship services. I'm going to get a little nerdy for with you for a moment. It's a chiastic arrangement. A chiasm is a literary device, also known as inverted parallelism, and what it means is a series of ideas are presented, building up to a, a climax or the main point, and then after the main point is made, the, the same ideas are repeated in reverse order. And so you can see here, um, this whole section of chapters is framed by a discussion about disorders in worship. So we looked at the first half of the first part in chapter 11, disorders in worship. Um, the section we're looking at right now is a part of another discussion about disorders in worship. Um, disruptive talking is the context of 1 Corinthians 14. And this instruction about women and whether they should talk or not in the service, it is situated in a particular context. Paul's not just saying, you know, what should I talk about now? Okay, women, don't ever talk. No, there's a context. There's a, there are circumstances, and that, that particular context is, is crucial for proper interpretation. So the worship services in Corinth were much more participatory than our services, as you can tell just from reading through um, the letters or the letter. And that, um, that high level of participation opened up the possibility of disruption and disorder. And in fact, that is what happened in their services. Some people were talking when they should have been quiet. Some people were preventing others from learning because they couldn't zip their lips. Um, and Paul instructs the church here what to do about this, how to properly conduct oneself in the worship service. And in particular, he says, only speak when it's your turn to speak. And when it's not your turn to speak, just be quiet. Stop causing disruption. So let's ask some questions of, of this passage. Uh, first question, who must be quiet? And I'm speaking of in the context of the whole paragraph, 1426 through the end. Who must be quiet? And very briefly, the answer is anyone who's disruptive. But, but Paul addresses three groups. He tells three groups of people to shush. Uh, that, that's my, you know, really sophisticated translation. Shush. Uh, he says, stop making it difficult for everyone to hear and learn. And the first group that he addresses are disruptive tongues speakers. So he tells people who speak in tongues in verses 27 and 28, stop causing disruptions. This is what he says. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it must be by two or at the most three, and each one in turn, so do it orderly, and one, and the one is to interpret, but if there is no interpreter, he is to keep silent in church and have him speak to himself and to God. Now, here's something to notice. He's talking to tongues speakers. That includes men and women. So men, Paul tells you to be silent in church. Comes across a little differently huh? than when we're just focused on the women's part. Um, verse 27, he says, don't talk over each other, just speak in turn. Verse 28, if there's no interpreter, keep silent. Keep that, that command in, in mind, because we're going to look at it. Um, keep silent. Second group of people that he addresses, disruptive prophets, verses 29 through 33a. Um, he says, you know, have two or three prophets speak, have the others pass judgment, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one is to keep silent. Do it in orderly. Don't all talk at once. You know, if uh, one person is going to need to sit down and the other person is going to speak, you see that same command? Keep silent. 
for you can all prophesy one by one, so again, orderly, um, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Order for the purpose of edification. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, don't try to make the excuse that like the Holy Spirit just comes over you and you're ecstatic and you can't control yourself. No. Exercise self-control. Um, third group of people that Paul shushes. Disruptive women. And those are the verses that I read for you a, a moment ago. Verse, verses 33b to 35. I'll, I'll put them up here again. We, we read these a moment ago. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to what? Keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. And he goes on, and then at the end, it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. Um, so verse 34, like he said to the t- disruptive tongue speakers, disruptive prophets, he says to the disruptive women, keep silent. Um, verse 35 Don't ask questions during the worship. Don't chat. Um, Verse 35, save your questions for later when you're at home. We'll we'll look at that in a moment. But to summarize, Paul shushes men. Paul shushes women. Paul shushes everyone who is disruptive in the the service. He says, look, you're you're talking and interrupting and and, um, you're holy rolling or whatever. Um, it's causing chaos, and, and the church is not being edified. The church isn't learning. People can't hear, do all things decently and in order. All right, well, so Paul tells women to be silent. Does that mean absolutely? Well, he tells three, three groups to be silent. Does that mean um, women must be absolutely silent in church? I once listened to a sermon on this passage, and, and the preacher's point was that women need to be absolutely silent in church. And he just kept shouting the, the keep silent command, or be quiet, or whatever, over and over again. Keep silent, keep silent, keep silent. And it, it reminded me of a scene from the film, The Princess Bride. Anybody know that film? Um, one of the characters, Vizzini, the Sicilian guy, is always saying, inconceivable. Something happens. And he says, inconceivable. And Inigo finally responds to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that's, <laughs> that's often what happens here. Verse 34 does not command women to be absolutely silent in church. How do we know? I mean, it's one thing for me to say that. How do we know? Three reasons. Number one, the command is not directed to all women. This is just a, you know, let's read the text. The command is directed to a subset of women in the church. According to verse 35, Paul is speaking about married women who have Christian husbands who attend the service with them, and these women are asking questions. So it's a subset of women. Not all the church, not all the women in the church would have been married. Some had not yet married, they were too young. Or, or hadn't just hadn't found someone to marry yet. Some were widowed. Some were married to unbelieving men, so that would exclude them from this, this command. And not all the women were asking questions. So the, the command is directed toward a subset of the women in the church. So um, it's, you know, is this a command for absolute silence? Well, not for all the women. Um, number two, how do we know it's not a command for absolute silence? Chapter 11. Um, Chapter 11, that we, which we looked at, constrains the interpretation of chapter 14. What do I mean constrains? I mean, it limits how we understand this command to keep silent. Remember what I said earlier, 
the basic unity of Scripture. Scripture doesn't contradict itself, and we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Back in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul said, women pray and prophesy in the, in the worship service. So if Paul is commanding absolute silence here in chapter 14, verse 34, he is contradicting his earlier statements. I am not willing to say that Paul contradicts himself. I have a high view of Scripture. The elders have a high view of Scripture, that there's a, a unified, consistent message Paul's not, so if Paul's not contradicting himself, we can't interpret this as, a, as an absolute, um, absolute silence. Um, we need to remember here, I'm going to do a little logic for a moment. I, I promise it'll be brief. Craig, was able, Craig did logic last week. I'm going to do logic. Um, the law of non-contradiction. Um, two statements cannot both be true in the same way at the same time. Two contradictory statements. So, Chapter 11, verse 5, women pray and prophesy in church. And chapter 14, verse 34, women keep silent in church. Those two cannot both be true in the same way at the same time. Either women must never speak in the worship service, or they're free to speak in the worship service. So since 11.5 says clearly that women pray or prophesy in the service, they can and do speak. Chapter 14, verse 34, cannot mean they must never speak. QED, drop the mic. No. Um, I felt like I was back in my discrete math class for a moment. Um, But just understanding that these passages are not contradictory. So um, reason number three, this is not a command for absolute silence. The flow of thought, and we've talked about this. Paul tells three groups of disruptive people to be quiet, and he gives the same command to all three groups. Verse 28, verse 30, verse 34. Same exact command, same Greek verb, um, translated in the NASB, keep silent. Now, let's ask some questions. Does Paul expect perpetual silence from the male and female tongues speakers? I mean, what's the point of the gift of speaking in tongues if you can't speak ever? Does he expect perpetual silence from the the first group? No, but he does expect them not to disrupt. Second group, the prophets. Does Paul expect perpetual silence from the male and female prophets? Remember chapter 11, there, there are male prophets, there are female prophets. Does he expect them never to speak? No but he does expect them not to disrupt. You get to the third group, same command. Would it make sense to expect perpetual silence from the third groups, the the wives, some of the wives? No, but he does expect them not to disrupt, just like he expects the others not to disrupt. So in context, the, the command to keep silent means something like stop interrupting. Stop talking at the same time. Um, quiet down, control yourself, and, and just be silent when it's not your turn to speak. It, it is not a command to be silent um, henceforth and forevermore whenever you are in church. So the, the absolute silence interpretation 
it distorts Paul's message here in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, one other question we, we want to ask of this passage. Um, what kind of speech is, is Paul forbidding? And it, it should be obvious from what I've been saying, but here he's referring to disruptive speech. Um, not all speech by women in the worship service, but disruptive speech. Now, is Paul, you know, again, you know, is he, is he using some kind of gender stereotype here, like women talk too much and they disrupt? Um, why were women disruptive? Well, I'm going to do this really quickly, but there's various plausible options, and they range from um, the women were, were weighing and judging prophecies. Paul talks about that in verse 29, and perhaps they were um, critiquing their husband's prophecies, and that would create you know, a marital spat right in the middle of the worship service, and that nobody wants to witness that. Um, it could be disrespectful questions or statements. You know, somebody's teaching, somebody's prophesying, and the women are, are challenging the teaching or, or promoting error. It could be simply, you know, this is a time where there's no amplification, and you've got kids, you're meeting in a crowded room at a home, it's hard to hear. Um, those are some plausible options. Are there any clues in the text? And I, I think so. Um, verse 35 the, the women that Paul tells to, to keep quiet, he assumes that they're speaking disruptively because they want to learn. He says, if you want to learn something, indicating they're speaking because they're not challenging the teaching, they're, they're trying to get clarification about what's being taught or, or being spoken about. Um, perhaps they're asking their husbands questions while somebody is is teaching or prophesying. I um, had to say something to I had to whisper something to Stephanie during the church service today, and I thought, "Oh, am I violating what Paul's talking about here?" It, it wasn't a disruption, you know. Don't imagine they're not in a room like this with people in pews; they're in close quarters. Um, perhaps they're interrupting the speaker with questions. I didn't understand what you just said, or I don't get that. Um, Maybe the women are talking amongst themselves about the teaching. And that fits very well with what we know about Corinth, uh, first century Corinth. You have people from many different places. Um, Greek is the common language, but not necessarily the heart language for everyone. And so you have women who in that society were not as well educated as men. All of a sudden they're in a Christian community that values women learning. They have all these new educational opportunities. They're, they're maybe struggling with trying to understand instruction in Greek if it's not their first language. Maybe they're wrestling with trying to understand different Greek accents, since you have people from all over the, the Greco-Roman world. Um, maybe, you know, there's, there's little kids tugging at them and distracting them, and so they're not picking up things. Um, they're learning new theological concepts. They're learning about the Old Testament, which, if they're Gentiles, wasn't very familiar to them. Um, so you can picture the scene. Um, wait, what, what did you just say? Repeat that. I, I didn't. I didn't quite get that. Or, or what did he say? I, you know, and it's causing a, a stir, a distraction. Um, that's the kind of speech Paul is is forbidding. Um, stop. He's essentially saying, stop chatting, <laughs> so you can listen. Um, save your questions for later. Now, whatever the particular circumstances were, we don't know for sure. Whatever the particular circumstances were. It's clear Paul doesn't forbid women from speaking at all in church. Um, verse 30, he's restricting a certain kind of speech, disruptive speech. Um, and then verse 35, when he says that it's improper, 
the, the improper speech is the disruptive speech. The shame or impropriety that Paul talks about is, due to a, is not due simply to the fact that it's a woman speaking in church. Remember chapter 11, verse 5, women pray and prophesy. It's the disruptive speech that is, uh, causes shame. Let me give you a quote here um, from Thomas Schreiner, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, one of the premier complementarian scholars written extensively on this issue. This is from his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Um, he says, The shame here does not consist of women speaking in and of itself. If that were the case, women could scarcely pray and prophesy in church. So see how reading this in context is very important. Um, the, the impropriety in verse 35 is disruptive speech, not simply the fact that it's a woman speaking. And the part about, you know, ask your husband when you get home, um, that doesn't mean women be quiet and know your place. That doesn't mean women can't pray because they're supposed to submit to men. That doesn't mean women can't make announcements. That doesn't mean women can't ask questions or women can't study the Bible and, and theology and, or women should just you know, never talk in church or, or women can't ask questions of men. Um, no, women are free. Christian women are free to ask questions, study theology for themselves, sing, talk with men, all of those things. Paul is simply saying, don't disrupt which is something all of us should, should strive um, for, not, not being disruptive. He's saying, look, stop chatting, save those questions up for when you get home, then you can ask your husband, don't disrupt everyone else. Um, that's what Paul is getting at. So let me summarize. We're, we're nearly done, but um, Paul's concern here is disruptive speech. The, the gender of the speaker is not the main issue. In this particular circumstance that he's addressing in, in Corinth, there were disruptive wives. There were also disruptive men and women speaking in tongues. There were also disruptive men and women prophesying. So the, the gender itself is not the issue. Um, Paul does not expect absolute silence from women in church. So there's nothing inherently wrong with a woman speaking in church. There's nothing inherently wrong with women having vocal roles in the church. That's why, based on this passage, I said the key takeaway is both men and women should avoid causing disruptions during the worship service. That's the main point of 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I'm just going to introduce 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Um, I'm actually going to skip a lot of what I was going to introduce to you, but I'm going to unpack this at our next session because this is a very important passage. We have to take this passage along with the passages we've looked at. Um, this passage establishes a, a limitation on women's role in the church, and not in a way that minimizes or devalues women, and not in a way that takes away from the things we've already talked about, but it does establish a limitation. Now, this passage, 1 Timothy 2, is often pressed to say more than it says. And, and we'll have to, I'll have to tease that out for you. But for that reason, this is the passage that says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Um, for that reason, we'll need to think through this passage carefully and wisely, since it's often pressed to say more than it does. Um, often wrong ideas about what it means to lead or to exercise authority are imposed on this passage. 
And those wrong ideas create a church culture in which men and women are engaged in a battle of the sexes. And power struggle is the the lens through which all interactions are filtered. That creates a kind of culture where everybody's on their toes. Who has power? Who doesn't have power? Is somebody trying to cross a line? Um, And it leads to Pharisee-like rules about what counts as, quote, exercising power. Now, I do think Paul has a a very particular limitation here. The elders think that. but, um, But we need to think through that carefully. And so that kind of culture where everybody's vying for power and withholding power and wondering if somebody's um, usurping power and authority, that's a far cry from the Bible's vision of the church as the family of God. Um, The church as brothers and sisters worshiping and serving side by side in Christ, using their voices to together glorify God. So let me give you the key takeaway from this passage. We'll have to unpack it next time, but I'll give it to you in two parts. Part one, women, this is based on 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. Women should study the Bible and theology alongside their brothers in Christ. Doing so will ensure they are well equipped to exercise their valuable gifts and ministries for the good of the church and the advance of the gospel. But God does not call women to fill the office of elder or to perform the ministry functions reserved for the elders of the church. So that's the big takeaway from 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. Paul says, let her learn. In other words, free her up to to be a disciple, to study, to grow in in grace and knowledge. But um, Paul says God does not call women to, to be elders. In other words, to fill the office of elder or to perform the ministry functions of elders, which I have not defined what those are for you. We'll look at that um, next time. But this is these are the key verses. First Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And maybe some homework for you is, you know, these statements about uh, quietness, submissiveness, remaining quiet, based on what we've seen in 1 Corinthians, um, maybe try to come up with some ideas of what he might mean right here. I'll, I'll, I'll clue you in a bit next time. But here's what we're going to see next time. Paul doesn't forbid women from all teaching ministries. Okay, In the same letter, he tells women to teach other women. He implies that women teach children. We see multiple examples in Scripture of women instructing men in, informally, um, in other ways. Uh, he does not forbid all teaching. He does not forbid women from exercising all, or doesn't forbid all exercises of authority. We'll have to tease that out, talk about that next time. What, what Paul forbids women from doing is filling the office of elder or performing the functions, um, the ministry functions reserved for the elders of the church. So, by the way, that same prohibition, you know, don't do what the elders are supposed to do, that applies to men, non-ordained men as well. Um, we're, we're bumping up at 5.30. Can I take like five additional minutes um, just to try to address some of the so what you know, what, is, what does this mean? I also had um, a bunch of slides dealing with some common concerns that come up. I'm going to save those for another time. But the so what? Okay, this was a quick flyover of these complicated passages. Um, what does it mean for us? Now, we're going to dive into some of the 
Um, you know, what could this look like practically? We'll, we'll look at that at the next session. But let me give you some ideas, a couple of ideas, to begin um, mulling over, chewing on. Um, some of this is repetition, but the Bible assumes and expects that women will play vocal roles in the worship service. So our worship service, our worship services ought to reflect that biblical vision for what the family of God does when they come together. And so clearly, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about prayer. Um, he talks about prophecy. Um, what could that look like in our context? You've got to come back next time. But it could look like many things. Prayers of praise, prayers of confession, prayers of petition, prayers of lament. We'll, we'll get into some specifics next time. But I, want, I really want us to be clear about the big principle before talking about how to work out the particulars. So if we're clear, you know, Paul, the Bible expects women to, to pray in the service, to, to have vocal roles in the service, the particulars become a little bit easier to, to work out. Um, again, repeating myself here, but there's nothing inherently wrong with a woman performing speaking functions in the church. Things like praying, things like singing, other things we'll talk about. The early church heard a, a multitude of women's voices in their services. And, and there's some of these women we know about. I mean, Mary. I mean, we have her Magnificat in, in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, that woman, that woman could piece together Scripture in amazing ways in prayers of praise and delight. I mean, she was a part of the early church in Acts 1. She's with the apostles in the upper room. I'm sure they got to hear her pray. It's probably pretty amazing. The early church heard Lydia's voice in their services. The early church heard Phoebe's voice in their services. The early church heard Priscilla's voice in their services, Nympha's voice, and then many more women we, we've never even heard about. So, you know, we need to be, try to really come to terms with this expectation that, that women will have a vocal role in the service. Um, you know, obviously we can say, okay, well, Paul talks specifically about prayer. What about reading scripture? We mentioned that as, as one of the, the things that we're, um, that we're um, seeking to, to implement. What, um, what about scripture? Well, obviously we still need to explore 1 Timothy 2. We haven't done that yet. Um, but let me start to answer that question for you. I'm going to do something here. Um, let me draw a good and necessary inference or consequence from the fact that women prophesied in the church. So that idea of good and necessary inference, that's a, a, a principle of Bible interpretation from the Reformed tradition. Our Confession of Faith talks about it, the Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, Article 1, paragraph 6, the Westminster Confession also talks about this. And what it means is we can draw certain inferences or deductions about issues the Bible doesn't talk about directly based on the things the Bible does directly address. And so let me, let me flesh this out for you very quickly. If women spoke for God to the congregation through the exercise of prophecy, prophecy being direct revelation from God, um, having a um, you know, verbal component. Um, if women spoke for God to the congregation through the exercise of prophecy, and, and Paul says, hey, you've got to weigh the, the prophecies. Maybe they're injecting some of their own you know, misguided thoughts in there. Weigh it. If they did that, surely they should be able to read God's inscripturated, inspired, infallible 
word to his people in the worship service. I'm saying that's a good and necessary inference. If, if they did this thing, which is, you know, in our context, we'd say it's more risky, you know, they might say something that's inaccurate. If they did that, how much more should they be able to read God's written word? Um, if the concern is that reading scripture or, or even praying for that matter is some kind of authoritative act, and, and Paul talks about you know, not exercising authority in 1 Timothy 2, if that's the concern, then we should also prohibit non-ordained men from reading scripture or praying in the service. Um, we, I say we, Grace Bible Church, have been a little sloppy in our thinking about authority and the exercise of authority. Um, the authority that First that Timothy 2 talks about is pastoral authority. The authority that God delegates to the elders of the church, um, a limited authority, a ministerial authority, um, that's what 1 Timothy 2 is, is talking about. And at GBC, we've kind of extended that authority that belongs to the elders. We've kind of, sort of, extended that so-called authority to, to men in general, as if all men have a kind of pastoral authority in the church. Um, and so the, this, the way we've kind of muddled things, it, it kind of goes like this. Men who aren't elders can do certain things in the worship service because they're men and they have authority. But women can't do those things because they're women and they don't have authority. That is not biblical. That's a confusion of concepts. That's confusing elder authority with, with something else. There is an elder authority, like I said limited ministerial in nature, and there are certain ministry functions that God reserves for the elders. But there's a wide variety of things that any believer can do by the virtue of the priesthood and prophethood of all believers. That's, that's part of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11-14, to 14, this, this diversity of gifts that God gives to his people to edify the church. Romans 12 also um, the key question, and I'm almost done here, the key question is not so much what can men do and what can women do or not do in the church. That's not really the question. The question is, what do only the elders do? What is it that, that God calls and commissions the elders to do specifically that no one else, no non-elder, should be doing in the church. And, and, and when we answer that question to the best of our ability, that clarifies for us what non-elders, whether they're, they're men or women, can and should do in the church. Okay, So um, we've tended to just say there's, there's male authority. The Bible speaks primarily in, the, in these instances of of the authority delegated to the officers, the elders of the church. And so, key question, what do only the elders do that, that others should not um, take upon themselves to do, whether they're a man or a woman? Okay. I'm going to save the common concerns 
to next time because I've already gone over my time and it's warm in here and um, there's a lot to chew on, okay? I know flyover and there's probably all kinds of questions. What about, what about this? And um, hopefully we will address some of those questions next time. And then as we start drilling down into particulars and pragmatics, sometimes there's gray areas and we need to use wisdom and discernment. But, but I, I hope you can, you can chew on, on what we've seen about 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and let that start working itself out um, in your thinking. So um, there's, you know, your handout has uh, a link to a questionnaire survey if you want to provide some feedback and we, we're going to try to make sure to cover the concerns and questions that people bring up um, in the final session. Uh, again, final session, not next Sunday, um, but November 5th. So let me, um, let me pray, and then we'll be, uh, we'll be done for today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Um, even though we, we struggle to understand it at times, even though it can be difficult for us to, to piece together the different um, parts. Uh, we pray that you would help us to, to wrestle through these things. We pray that you would cause your word to take root in our hearts and um, really renew us and transform us as you promised that it will do. Um, we ask your help even as we go forward and then for our final session in a few weeks. Lord, would you continue to give us insight, understanding, wisdom, unity, and humility. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.